0: Welcome in. Happy Tuesday. Good to have you got a, another jam packed show and, and a very special two o'clock hour. I'll explain why momentarily want to get you caught up on a couple of of other things making headlines today locally here. If you're a sports fan, we've been talking a little bit about Bally Sports Detroit and, and some of the financial issues that their parent company is experiencing. And that's left a little bit of doubt for fans of the Red Wings, the Tigers, the Pistons, about where they would be able to watch these these games into the future if Diamond Sports, the parent company of Valley Sports, goes belly up because they're going bankrupt. Well, now Amazon is stepping in to, I guess, the surprise of nobody in talks with Diamond Sports and some of its creditors to invest in the broadcast group and partner on streaming. That's according to people close to these discussions. Crane's Detroit's report that under the potential deal, Amazon would acquire a multi-year streaming rights to Major League Baseball, NBA, and NHL games that are currently under control of Diamond Sports. Diamond would continue to operate the channels, they say. Although it's a little hazy about how much Amazon would need to invest, but the proposal involves acquiring an equity stake in Diamond, which would certainly keep Diamond afloat while they maybe figure out a, a longer-term plan. Now, Bally Sports, uh, uh, for the last number of years, has had the rights to the Tigers, the Pistons, the Red Wings, but they also have rights to MHSAA football and boys and girls basketball as well. Uh, so all of that's run through Bally. So there is the possibility that you'll be watching Tigers games or Red Wings games or Pistons games on Amazon Prime, which... Look, I, there are lots of people that have these streaming services, and we saw it during college football season. More of these games were going towards Peacock uh, and other streaming platforms, but it 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 would more than likely cut down on viewership because still, I think most people have cable or at least they have streaming services that carry a, a, a cable esque offering uh, as opposed to these individual streaming platforms. So we'll, we'll see what that does to the to the viewing, but. In sports these days, I mean, all of these games are broadcast, which is not how it used to be. Um, And so you're 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 left hoping that you'll be able to watch these games. Meanwhile, some Democrats are divided over how President Joe Biden's reelection pitch with some criticizing controversial terms like Bidenomics, while others inside the Biden campaign circle are remaining relatively calm. We're confident that if we keep our heads down, ignore the chatter, ignore the noise and put our plan in place, we'll be successful on Election Day. That's according to communications director Michael Tyler for the Biden campaign. Uh, Others outside of Biden's circle, particularly Democrats, are a little hazy on the term Bidenomics. Fox News reporting that John Morgan, an Orlando attorney who's a longtime big money donor to the Democratic Party, Said that the Biden team needs a better word to explain his accomplishments than "Bidenomics." Multiple outlets, including Axios, have reported that Biden and other Democratic Party leaders are refusing to use the term "Bidenomics" in speeches and social media posts, especially if they are Democrats in the House or in the Senate that are running in tight reelection campaigns, um, trying to distance themselves from that term. Uh, again, as we are within that year from this election, it going to be pretty important how these candidates are phrasing uh, certain types of you know catchy catchphrases like Bidenomics and whether that's going to help them get elected or reelected. If it's not going to help them get reelected, they're not, certainly not going to use it. Um, this continued conflict between Israel and Hamas is a complicated one. It is one that we try to tackle on this show ever since October 7th. It's very difficult when we only have a couple of minutes. So we decided we need to get some experts in here, have a long-form discussion about what's happening, because things continue to change pretty rapidly on the ground in the Middle East, And that's why we brought in Saheed Khan, the Associate Professor of Teaching in Near Eastern Studies at Wayne State University, who joins us. It's good to see you. Good to see you, too. Thanks for coming in. Thank you for having Appreciate us. Appreciate it. No snow today for your travels, in, which was nice.
1: That was welcome.
0: Yes, we did that for you. Thank <laughs> you. Uh, also, Howard Lupovich, the director of the cohen Haddow Center for the Judaic Studies at Wayne State University. And he joins us. It's nice to see you in person.
2: Nice to see you, too.
0: Thanks for coming in.
2: Thanks for having me.
0: Um, so the the basis of this actually mirrors something that that you guys have done for, for a long time. This is a a a conflict that has been going on since the early 1900s. Certainly you can track it back to after World War II, and we'll get into a little bit of that. Um. But but you two have worked very closely and hosted different forums on uh, 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 trying to bridge a gap or bring people together, try to paint a certain picture of what's happening in that part of the world. Why did you start that? see, we'll start with you.
1: Well, I don't think we started how we did. We uh, We didn't start with Israel-Palestine at all. Okay. I mean, first of all, for the record, I mean, I'm, I'm not Palestinian. Sure. Uh, but... And it's not an issue that really defines us. I think, if anything, part of our identity, of course, is our our, our faith identities, uh, how we being Jewish and I being Muslim. Uh, and we came together as academics, uh, became friends uh, in having not just discussions, but difficult discussions for a lot of people and hopefully demonstrating to people that you can have these discussions and have respect for one another. You can agree to disagree and still have that kind of mutual respect and admiration and really learning from one another. So I think the very first time uh, we did uh, we, we did a talk together was uh, dealing with a Muslim-Jewish poll uh, that ha- or survey that had been done regarding the American landscape. From there, we morphed into being on a panel at the DIA on Rembrandt in Amsterdam <laughs> painting Jesus Christ. Uh, And then from there, we moved into uh, different topics, uh, everything from anti-Semitism and Islamophobia to Zionism, Jihad, whose Middle East is it, uh, when in 2017, the uh, U.S. Embassy was moved uh, from Tel Aviv to West Jerusalem, hopefully providing our audiences with uh, more texture, more insight, uh, more context, and more balance to uh, these uh, complex topics, which, as you said very rightly, can't really be handled in either two minutes or 240 characters on mm. Twitter or X. Why is it such a difficult topic to broach with people, especially people that come
0: from different backgrounds, different religions, different parts of the world? Why why, why is it especially, I mean, today it, you talked about social media and trying to boil this down into something simple as a tweet. But it's so much more difficult. Why Why is it so difficult to have these conversations, do you think,
2: Howard? Well, first of all, it's difficult because the feelings are so strong. There are deep, deeply rooted connections uh, to this part of the world, That some of which are theological in nature, some of which are historical in nature or familial in nature. And when you have two different groups, each of whom have these deep connections, it's difficult to see that the uh, that that the, that point of view which disagrees or negates your own is somehow acceptable or legitimate so the feelings run run very very deep and the stakes are also very high because like i said two groups who have this deep connection losing this is this is a this is a conflict which to lose it just leaves your side in a very difficult situation and it's difficult to imagine I think you also have two peoples you know you have you have jews slash Israelis, you have Palestinians each of whom have had a history of well the history that revolves in some ways around a point of grievance mm-hmm. a- and the 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 attainment of statehood for both groups is um you know a reprieve or a resolution or, or uh, for that grievance mm-hmm. a- and that that's what makes it very important as well
0: so uh, as we continue today uh, we're going to uh, Continue to have these conversations through the two o'clock hour. If if people would like to weigh in, ask a question, um, we, we would welcome that, uh, and the professors would welcome that. 0 WJR. We'll, we'll take a break. Come back. We're going to talk about the the past, how we got to where we are today and we're going to continue to try to find a way forward as we continue here on JR Afternoon. All right, welcome back. 800 859 957 800-859-0WJR. Joined by Saheed Khan and Howard Lupovitz uh, from Wayne State University. It's great to have you both. I-, I-, I think that having these conversations at least can provide a little bit of color, it can provide context, it can provide clarity for some folks. And I, I don't, it's t- as hard as it is to... Uh, have these conversations in our format and in terrestrial radio where you've got segments and you only have a certain amount of time. It's even more damaging when you're dealing with social media, which we we touched on briefly, but there is this sense that, that people aren't willing to sit down. People aren't willing to hear these, these different sides of the same, of the same issue of the same conflict. And when you get to that point, you, you tend to miss the bigger picture. You tend to miss important facts or, or you, you miss the ability to, to sympathize with somebody or, or understand somebody's point of view. And I, I don't subscribe to that. I, I, don't know, I don't know when in our path we, we got to this point, but it's, it doesn't feel productive at all. Is that, is that a fair representation, do you think, Howard?
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, the complexity alone belies any one-dimensional approach to this conflict. In fact, I I mean, I would say no matter what your one dimension is, if you have a one-dimensional approach to this conflict, it's going to be less than adequate. Or, or, Or to put it another way, if you really want to understand the conflict between Israel and the Palestinians, which, of course, is not the same as the conflict between Israel and Hamas, this longer conflict between Israel and the Palestinians, if you really want to understand it in all of its complexity, you have to embrace both the proposition that, owing to a certain historical experience, Jews have a right to a state in Palestine, But also that owing to a historical experience, Palestinians have a right to a state there as well. Mm -hmm. You've got to embrace them both. Any argument for one is also an argument for the other. I mean, and that's that has to be your point of departure, in my opinion.
0: All right. Can I can I try now? I have two experts here. Can I try to give you a nutshell version of the history of this? Sure. sure. And you can give me thumbs up, thumbs down. But I want you to add to it if you feel. Uh, The Ottoman Empire was placed under this region. Palestine was placed under British control after the decision of League of Nations. Right. Uh, Partner that with the Nazi persecution in the Holocaust of World War II. You had tens of thousands of people migrating to that region and conflict really started. Uh, There have been uprisings from the Palestinians at different times, certainly surrounding the Oslo Accords of the 90s uh, and and. Over the last 15 years or so, uh, whether it's the late 2000s, the early to mid 2010s or even the early 2020s, there's always been a ceasefire after these these conflicts that have flared up. But as we find ourselves in today, they don't they don't hold. Um, and then in 2006, when Hamas won the election, they took uh, they took control of Gaza. And and that's about where we find ourselves today. Is that is that in a nutshell? A fair representation of where we're at?
1: So factually, everything you said is 100% accurate. The issue though is, and I'm going to go ahead and date all of us in the room. This is like tinker toys. You've got the big hub pieces, but you have to know how the sticks fit and in which hole you place them because there is a sequence, there is a context, and there are a bunch of other uh, factors that are uh, at work here. Mm -hmm. So what you're talking about is uh, a certain number of very important uh, milestones that, that happened. But you're also looking at a broader causal issue. So how did we get to the Ottoman Empire losing this area? We're looking at World War I. We're also looking at ambition by European forces for this area, which predated World War I. Mm-hmm. Interest in the Suez Canal, interest in oil starting to be discovered in the early 20th century. The fact that the Europeans promised the same piece of land to multiple parties, the Jews, thanks to the Balfour Declaration, the Arabs, thanks to a series of letters and correspondence between an Arab tribesman and the British in Egypt at that time. Uh, The French are also involved at a certain time after World War II. You're absolutely right. The narrative of the Holocaust uh, plays a very big role. But so does uh, America emerging on the global stage as an international power and also its interest in oil in the area moving all the way up. And I know how he uh, will certainly also talk about this uh, efforts for peace that were made uh, with Egypt and were successful with Egypt in the 1970s, with Jordan in the 1990s. Uh, moving forward, as you said, there was also a promise of peace with Oslo in 1993. Uh, unfortunately shattered two years later with the assassination of Yitzhak Rabin, Uh, moving uh, uh, more forward a series of conflicts that involved Gaza. Uh, The uh, underlying issues, though, not necessarily being addressed, like occupation, uh, status of Jerusalem, security for Israel, uh, which then really brings us to the uh, Mm. the, the present time.
0: I want to attack this kind of in a in a three step phase. Uh, again, past, present, future. Where, where we started and and kind of where we're we're going. What were the signs, Howard? Do you believe as we as after twenty twenty one, the ceasefire in twenty twenty one. This region is still very unsettled, but what were the signs? Do you believe that led to October seventh? That's
2: a that's a great question. Because the signs are much more visible in retrospect. I think certainly from the vantage point of Israel, the the, the severity of the attack and the brutality of the attack and and the, the effectiveness of the attack mm-hmm. came as a complete surprise. Before October 7th, there were certain assumptions about the Israeli military, Israeli security, Israeli intelligence, uh, which simply did not point to any of that happening. Now, they're still sort of trying to sort that out in Israel. I would say once this conflict is over, they're going to figure out, they're going to start to try to lay some responsibility. So even already the military and the intelligence community are already saying that they brought this to attention of the government, the Netanyahu government, and the Netanyahu government for a number of, its, well, for its own political reasons, chose to downplay and ignored and actually facilitated it. Maybe, like I said, a lot of this is still being sorted out. But in retrospect the i mean the one sign that really points to it is the fact that in past conflicts Hamas was contained but never really neutralized Hamas has remained Hamas both militarily but i think also Hamas's aims in all of this have not changed really you know their original charter in 1988 i mean said among other things It said that its goal was the violent destruction of the state of Israel. It also said that negotiation, compromise, and diplomacy are simply not options, Hmm. that the only resolution is a violent revolution. And while they revised their charter in 2017, this was still there. The other part of of the events of October 7th, which in retrospect are clear, is that in Hamas's charter it's pretty clear that they see as the adversary not only the state of Israel as a political entity, and not only Israelis as people, but Jews. And uh, this conflict, I think more than previous ones, has had, it really has had the character and the rhetoric uh, and the exaltation about the killing of Jews and not only Israelis. There's that moment, you know, that, um, that audio recording of one of Hamas's militants phoning his parents and bragging about how many Jews he killed mm-hmm. as opposed to how many Israelis he killed. So those things are clearer in retrospect, and I think they'll be clearer moving forward.
0: I have about just a minute left here, and I, either of you can handle this. What, what, how has Hamas evolved since maybe 2006 when they won the election and, and took over Gaza?
1: Well, I don't know how much evol- what it really ma- uh, is about evolution. I mean, they are a force uh, within Gaza itself, uh, and really, uh, for all intents and purposes, uh, isolated there. Uh, there is no relationship between them and the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank. In fact, if anything, they have uh, more of a relationship with some of those that provide support for them, particularly uh, uh, Iran. Uh, And then you also, of course, have the fact that uh, most of their political wing is uh, in exile, uh, some of them uh, being in Qatar, where negotiations with the Israelis occurred Mm -hmm. for a ceasefire. Uh, But given the situation of Gaza uh, over the past uh, uh, 20 years or so, There isn't and there hasn't been really that much support for Hamas. There haven't been any new elections or anything inside the strip, inside the strip. Unfortunately, though, this is one of those moments where it has probably galvanized support Mm -hmm. because of how severe uh, the Israeli uh, actions have been there. And and
0: I do want to we'll talk about that next, because I think there is a pretty clear message that needs to be made about Palestinians and about Hamas. I think it's very easy to lump them all in, but that's taking the easy way out, and I think there's a more nuanced explanation. i got to take a break. We'll get to your calls and more from our experts next on JR Afternoon. All right, I do want to squeeze in a couple of your calls here. We've got Zahid Khan, the Associate Professor of Teaching and Near Eastern Studies at Wayne State University, and Howard Lupovich, the Director of the cohen Haddow Center for Judaic Studies, also at Wayne State University. They host uh, an interesting panel every year. It's titled A Shared Future, and they tackle a number of issues inside the Middle East and, and the conflicts that that are uh, prevalent there, and, and obviously the one that we are talking about today is the ongoing war between Israel and Hamas. Can we can we take a, a couple calls here?
3: Sure.
0: Um, and then we'll continue our conversation. I do want to squeeze in Tom in Birmingham. Tom, if you could get right to it, and we'll try to get you answered. Hey, Tom.
3: Hi there. Uh, it's so great to have these guys. Thank you for this topic. Uh, I'm I'm a uh, American of Palestinian ancestry, of a 1948 refugee, half Christian, half Muslim. Both of my best friends were Jewish, to be honest. And I, I, the terrible circumstances that the uh, both these peoples by the Sykes-Picot Agreement, Balfour Declaration, whatever you want to see, the, the Hollywood side of it, Lawrence of Arabia was terrible, because I think they could be otherwise very compatible people. But as with Palestinian background, I have to say there's some self-criticism we have to apply. Uh, in, in terms of uh, number one, when the Oslo Accords came along, we had great uh, uh, leadership from the West Bank and Gaza with Hanana Shrawi, the 1991 Madrid Peace Conference. Instead, we had the PLO and Yasser Arafat take over, and he had feckless leadership. Shimon Peres asked him to get a, a suicide bomber out of Gaza that Yasser said wasn't there, was there. And then the Israeli Arabs ended up boycotting Shimon Peres because of a mistake in bombing in, the, in, in Lebanon. And brought in Netanyahu because he won by less than a percentage point. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, this is uh, these are unfortunate things, and I'm not saying I don't have constructive criticism for the Israeli side. I'm just trying to point out that if we're going to get to an honest uh, ending of this, we have to have some self reflection on the mistakes both sides have made. So I hope that contribution is a fair one yeah. there as
0: well. Thank you, Tom. Appreciate it. Uh,
1: I I I can't express my gratitude enough to you, Tom, for calling in because I think that that is. Exactly what Howie and I try to impart, this idea that uh, intellectual honesty is really paramount. Um, I think that there are people who probably are better at uh, uh, handling this from more of an emotional register. Uh, but our backgrounds are, as historians uh, and as a, as, a, as academics, uh, this is sort of within our wheelhouse mm-hmm. and what we hope to contribute to uh, the conversation. Uh, we're not trying to discount uh, people's emotional investment in it. But as as Tom said, recognizing that it is far more complex than the silo in which many people do live uh, is absolutely essential. Otherwise, there's these huge gaps in the narrative that can't be explained unless you realize that there's more to the narrative. So I want to get to where we are today. Uh, obviously, some hostages have
0: been released by Hamas. And uh, I, I believe Benjamin Netanyahu is supposed to meet with the families of some hostages tonight or today. Um, and and that continues to be a main focus. But Benjamin Netanyahu has, he really has not minced words. He wants to out Hamas. He wants to root and stem, pull them right out of the strip because he feels that Israel will never truly be safe as long as Hamas remains in power in, in Gaza. Um. Is there, is there, a way forward, where like, is there a way forward, at least from an Israeli perspective, where they stop their offensive, and we come to an immediate, uh, de-escalation of this situation in the Strip without eliminating, Hamas, and in an effort to try to get these these. These hostages back to safety. Is there is there a conceivable way? Do you feel, Howard?
2: Maybe. I think first of all, the conflict doesn't stop. Doesn't they, they, You know, doesn't stop until all the hostages are released. It has to be every single one. That's first. Secondly, there has to be some some overture from Hamas that their aims are going to change. If stopping, if if having a ceasefire simply means allowing Hamas to retool and regroup and do this again. That's going to be difficult as well. Um, but if those two things can be accomplished, especially the release of the hostages and also, obviously, Hamas ceasing, not shooting missiles at Israel anymore. If that also has to stop. Then maybe I, I think the biggest question Israelis have and I think the biggest question generally is on the day after this is over. What does the region look like? Yeah. I mean, but I think at this point from Israel and in the strip, it's devastation. Well, exactly. Exactly. But how do you move forward and how do you rebuild? But I think at this point, defeating Hamas and and I'm not sure if defeating Hamas means annihilating Hamas. Said, I think I've heard you say
1: making Hamas irrelevant in the strip. I think that might be that. Is
2: that something that
0: Hamas fears? Do you do you feel?
1: Absolutely. I mean, nobody wants to be sidelined. Uh, Everybody wants to have uh, skin in the game, so to speak. Uh, I mean, if you think about organizations and and entities that that are most alarmist, they're alarmist because they want, ironically, the house to be on fire. Otherwise, they serve no purpose. And Hamas, I think, sees itself as that. Now, to be fair, uh, Hamas comes around uh, in large part, as as Tom alluded to, uh, really what was seen as the corruption and the ineffectiveness of the Palestinian Authority, first under Yasser Arafat, Mm Uh, and then by Mahmoud Abbas. Uh, Abbas certainly was able to uh, hold space within the West Bank, uh, but Gaza didn't feel the same way about it, and uh, therefore they voted in Hamas because they felt that they had nothing else to lose because the PA really wasn't much of an option. Uh, Of course, uh, now we see the problem of Hamas, that they have become uh, uh, simply uh, uncontrollable. And I would also just add to Tom's question that Beyond this notion of the
2: importance of self criticism and uh, you know and intellectual honesty, I think you've really underlined the fact that this is a crisis of leadership on both sides in order to really move forward. you need strong not just strong leadership but the right leadership I mean the template is Begin and Sadat, two individuals who are able to you know, rethink their own worldview in order to make peace in the best interests of their people. You need the right Israeli leader to do it, and you and the Palestinians have to produce someone as well. It's not entirely clear who that is, certainly on the Palestinian side, but that's an absolute necessity, and that's Tom makes your question so important.
0: Eight hundred eight five nine zero nine five seven eight hundred eight five nine zero wjr Let's go to Vince Northill. Hey Vince. Hey, gentlemen.
4: Chris, thank you for taking my call. Um, and gentlemen, thank you for taking the time to explain your positions on this pivotal issue. I sincerely appreciate it. Um, my thought process is this. How much of a responsibility do you think uh, for the destabilization of the Middle East due to the Abraham Accords when Donald Trump went over there and made a massive deal with the Egyptians, with the Jordanians, with the Israelis to start open business and commerce? And it just seems to me that... The um, Iranians got extremely upset by all these, by the UAE, all these Muslim countries coming together for the financial interest interest of the, and I'm going to emphasize this word, civilized Muslims to do commerce, open borders, do business, make money, maybe turn the whole entire Middle East into what the EAU is and what the Saudis have done.
1: All right, Vince, Uh, I, I appreciate that. What are your thoughts? Well, thank you for the call, Vince. Uh, First of all, uh, the Abraham Accords uh, dealt with uh, two countries uh, specifically, the United Arab Emirates and Bahrain, to normalize uh, diplomatic relations with the state of Israel. Uh, Unfortunately, in many ways, this was uh, inaccurately portrayed or promoted as bringing peace uh, between the UAE and Bahrain and Israel. Uh, These countries were never at war. Uh, What they really did was put out into the open Relationships that had actually existed for quite a while. In fact, I was in um, in the UAE about two years ago. There were plenty of uh, of Jewish expatriates who'd been in the UAE for 20 years working, mm. and they said that there would never been any issues with their being Jewish. They just simply didn't happen to be from Israel because there were no diplomatic relations, there were no passport uh, recognitions, etc. Uh, what we find here is it's definitely an economic deal, uh, and one that was going to be certainly mutually beneficial for all. What we find, though, that in the last two months, even the UAE and Bahrain have had to dial down their relationship with uh, with Israel because they've seen it as being simply too egregious. Mm. As far as um, uh, Vince's other point regarding Iran, Iran actually uh, is not upset by this. For Iran, they see this as a validation uh, that the UAE and Bahrain are corrupt. Uh, they are th- authoritarian regimes that uh, cozied up to Israel, in their estimation, simply for money, without any concern for having any moral conviction. This is the way that Iran so that sees is
0: it. Iran up, you feel?
1: This is something that Iran has leveraged very, very effectively as being uh, an effort to say, "See, this is how the Gulf states are. This shows the difference between them and us." Mm,
0: very interesting. I have to take one more break. Uh, still, lots to talk about. Don't go anywhere. More as we continue with our guests here on JR Afternoon. All right, welcome back. Uh Sahid Khan and Howard Lupovich from Wayne State join us. Um appreciate your time very much and the discussion. Um, you know, one of the, the things that I I I wanted to hit on was these, these protests, these rallies that we continue to see here in the United States, certainly on college campuses. They they continue to be pretty prevalent. And with that, we've seen an increase in anti-Semitism. We've seen an increase uh, in Islamophobia. And, and again, it almost feels like these people are living in echo chambers and they're not getting a full picture or they're not sitting down and having conversations. They're, they're not, they're not understanding where people are coming from. And is that how, how do we quell or tamp down some of these tensions? Because Again, it's very visceral to a lot of people, uh, maybe family in these parts of the world or they hail from these parts of the world. It, it is it, it can be in, incredibly personal. How do we start bringing the temperature down? How do we start cooling things off a little bit while still understanding that people have strong feelings about these issues? Howard,
2: that's a great question. It's a great question. And I'm not sure I have the answer immediately. But I can suggest the following. First of all, thinking about these campus protests, I think we have to distinguish between two two groups within the protesters. Mm -hmm. You have protesters who are Palestinian-Americans for whom this is extremely personal. Like you say, family, friends, they're they're directly involved. And then you have others who are not Palestinian-American who are supporting it for other reasons. So I think the Palestinian-Americans, the crucial thing is and the hope is is in terms of tamping down the rhetoric, is that they'll recognize the difference between, let's call it nonviolent and peaceful protests, and for the most part these protests have been, and that the problem with these protests is not necessarily the rhetoric, because free speech, they can say what they want, is that sometimes the rhetoric leads to things beyond rhetoric. Threats, vandalism, even violence Uh, And it's making the other students on campus feel not only uncomfortable, which is something students have to deal with, but physically threatened. Mm. That's unacceptable for the protesters who are not Palestinian. I I mean, I think this is where it really a place to start is there's an element of well, partly it's the the echo chamber of social media. But I think it's also an element of bandwagon here. This is the popular. Is it trendy? This is this is the trendy, popular issue of the day. And, And it really starts from a trendy soundbite. Zionism is settler colonialism. Now that's an erroneous claim, but it's a very easy claim to uh, to embrace uh, because everybody agrees that colonialism is bad, and if if colonialism is bad, and you call Zionism colonialism, then naturally Zionism is bad, and you don't have to think about it beyond that. And th- that element of the protest, I think, is something that, I mean, it's it's overly simplistic, and it points to the it points to a complete. Absence of understanding of, of the complexity and nuance of this conflict. So how to deal with it? Well, the first step is what we've already alluded to in this conversation, is that the antidote to one-dimensional narrow thinking is not more one-dimensional narrow thinking, is nuance and context and background and perspective. Nuance can melt it. Now, but, but the trick is, and I think, Saeed, you'll agree, when these, some of these same like on our campus, when some of these same students are in our classroom, Their minds are open. They are critical thinkers. They embrace nuance, partly because they have to so they don't fail the course, (laughs) partly because in that setting they are willing and they are eager to do it. And when they leave the room and go in and change modes from being student and learner Mm -hmm. to activist and protester, it's like they have some kind of they morph into something much less open minded and much more and much narrower. So the trick is to transplant the setting and the mentality of the classroom into the public space.
1: Well, they also in the classroom, they have a moderator. They have somebody who hopefully has read enough, read more, especially the nuance, the context, and is providing that with them. So they can always check back with the instructor and say, hey, Mm. is, is that right? And then we usually don't ever say yes, but we always say yes, and, and add to that when you're out in the streets protesting uh there really is no moderator except oneself uh or uh if there's somebody else who's leading sure. leading the the the, the, uh, the rally unfortunately in many uh in many protests you're going to find on on both sides of this uh this issue the moderator usually is the person with the bullhorn leading the uh chants and the chants usually uh, serve to be as provocative as possible mm-hmm. to really keep everyone's uh, passions uh, as inflamed as possible
0: I do want to squeeze John here in Windsor, and then I've got some final questions for for the both of you. Hey, John.
5: Hi, Chris. Great. I mean, you know what? This is such a good topic, and you're doing a great job, and your guests are wonderful. But I'd like to make a comment. This is the first time I've ever heard anybody on the radio or television in years say the word Zionism. I grew up in Dearborn. My Arab friends from 10 to 80, they say it's the Zionists that are creating the problems and they that they have to tone it down. And I've never heard that till today. They even the, the word mentioned Zionist because I think it might be, you know, a bad thing to talk about because I never hear it. Can he explain to me why I, I am wrong that they blame Zionism for what's happening in the Middle East?
2: That's a great question. Thanks, Thank John. You. Thank you, John, for that. Thank for that question. So I think you're absolutely correct. Uh, blaming Zionists is an example of an oversimplification, and it's an example of a lack of understanding of what Zionism lazy. is. It's intellectually lazy. That's a, that's a, I think that's a very good way to put it. And intellectually sloppy, I would say, as well. Um, so in, in some ways, step one in really understanding this is understanding what Zionism is and understanding what Zionism is not. So I'll be very blunt. I'll be very plain. Zionism is not a form of European colonialism. Zionism is a form of European nationalism. It's not the same thing. Calling Zionism as a form of colonialism uh, ignores the fact that there was a long pre-existing connection between Jews and Palestine, which predates the beginnings of Zionism by centuries. Mm. Secondly, it also ignores the fact that European Jews who founded Zionism who became Zionists were not trying to impose European culture on a non-European population or part of the world but they became Zionists because they were rejected by European culture they 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 were deemed non-European i think it's often forgotten that for centuries Jews were referred as referred by Europeans especially mm-hmm. European uh, uh, you know European Christians as being asiatic or in the parlance of the day Oriental. Mm. For centuries, Jews were excluded because they were deemed as not being European. And now, suddenly, in the demonization of Zionism, Jews are being demonized because Zionism somehow is something European. Is an inherent contradiction there? Mm. Rather, Zionism was a movement of return. Mm. Jews had an old connection to this to this land, and they were returning to the land. So as we there's lots of talk about
0: ceasefire there's lots, lots of talks about about how to bring this conflict to an end at least uh in the near term is a ceasefire possible is a two state solution possible is that an old fashioned way of of thinking about a conclusion to this how, how do we bring this thing to an end i got just a minute left
1: yes to the first question no to the second question i think that there is in fact underway right now um uh, overtures toward uh, another ceasefire the demands from the international community, with the exception of the United States, are categorical on this issue, especially the uh, the other four countries in the uh member states of the u n security council permanent uh, mm. uh, member states as far as the two state solution, I think that this is rather elusive, um, partly because even the last incarnation of a of a two state solution uh was going to be one that uh, was very limiting, and it would be very difficult for the Palestinians to go ahead and accept. Uh, there's going to have to be some very creative thinking uh, beyond just a two-state model, I think, uh, for it to be acceptable by both sides.
0: Uh, Howard, real quick, as we wrap up here, uh, thank you first uh, to the both of you. Thank you for coming on. In, in just a couple of minutes, where, where is the best resources for people to use to get the information that they need on this issue, do you feel?
2: Oh, uh, I, I would start, well, I would start with a with a book called the the palestinian palestinian israel conflict a very short introduction oh, by martin bunton
0: that sounds great
2: it's 80 pages you can read it even if you don't like to read long books yeah um i think that's a good place to start
0: saheed khan howard lupovich thank you both so much appreciate the time i hope to do this again uh, under better Absolutely. circumstances
2: would love to have thank you very
0: much got to take a break more next on jr afternoon all right welcome back three o'clock hour Still a lot to do today. Uh, we, we are going to talk to Shri Tanadar, the congressman out of Michigan's 13th district, coming up uh, at 318. Because there were uh, Hamas and uh, pro-Palestinian and Israeli protests uh, out in front of his house. So we'll talk to him coming up at 318. Kind of an interesting place for a protest. Um, but in the meantime, some stories making headlines today, including here locally. Amazon is in talks with Diamond Sports Group. They're the owners of Bally Sports. You know, Bally Sports Detroit, who have the rights to the Tigers, the Red Wings, and the Pistons. Amazon is in talks with some of Diamond's creditors to invest in the regional sports broadcaster and partner on streaming, according to people close to these discussions. Now, Cranes Detroit is reporting that under the potential deal, Amazon would acquire multi-year streaming rights to the MLB, NBA, and NHL that are currently under Diamond sports control. Diamond would continue to operate the channels, although it's unclear how much Amazon would be willing to invest. So, there's a possibility, I guess, where you'd have to have Amazon Prime in order to watch the Red Wings or the Tigers or the Pistons. So, it, it... it's interesting it It almost feels like a new frontier is being forced on sports fans because Diamond is going belly up or at least going into a restructuring form of bankruptcy, and it would it would force a little bit a change in the way that we watch our sports. I don't know for sure if it would go on Amazon Prime or if you could watch it for free on amazon Prime uh even if you didn't have a subscription. But I would imagine that they'd want to be making their money back somehow, even though they, I guess they would be able to still sell advertising uh, on those on those broadcasts. But it, it it certainly feels like the way of the future. That's for sure. Uh, how about this? Some Democrats are divided over President Joe Biden's reelection pitch, and that is Bidenomics. We had talked about this, I feel like a couple of weeks ago, but. There are some inside the Democratic Party, especially those in swing states and swing districts that are very hesitant on using the term Bidenomics. Why? Well, it's because people aren't feeling it. People aren't feeling it when they go to the grocery store. People certainly aren't feeling it when they're buying things for the holidays. And so on the ground level, people don't really feel like the economy is in such great shape, even though. Uh, unemployment is trending in a right way. the The markets are trending in a right way. Inflation is down. Home mortgage rates are down. And so, while all of those things can be good indicators, that doesn't mean people are feeling it. And so, if 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 there are Democrats in swing states that feel like they don't need to adopt or identify with the term Bidenomics, then they're just not using it. They're not using it in campaign speeches. They're not using it in in uh, advertising or donation uh, uh, events, Uh, certainly not using it on social media. Kind of an interesting look at the the mindset of some of these politicians in swing states, uh, particularly Democrats that that want to stay away from the term Bidenomics. And even I, I really haven't heard the president talk about Bidenomics very much, which is interesting. Uh, Another thing that I've been alerting you to is young voters. Now, that 18 to 35 range in 2020, Joe Biden got about 70 percent of voters in that range. I told you then and I tell you now that that age group is the most unreliable age group of of the voting population. Why? Well, it's because. They don't want to be bothered half the time. And while they may be particularly passionate on certain issues. Um, if they're tied up or if voting doesn't fit in their schedule. And believe me, I know this from firsthand experience. Then. They just won't make room for it. And again. <laughs> that can be particularly damaging to to political candidates. Depending on how you vote. Well, now young voters are explaining Why? They're bailing on Joe Biden or backing another candidate. In 2020, Joe Biden had about 20, excuse me, 70 percent of that 18 to 34 range group. Now, according to this new uh, NBC News poll, Joe Biden is getting 42 percent of that age group. Donald Trump getting 46 percent. So again. Still a long way, still 11 months, 10 months and some change away from the presidential election. But. These numbers should be interesting. And what what you're going to get from Democratic operatives inside the DNC is that ah, we're not worried because our election year hasn't really started yet. Uh, I I call baloney on that because in this poll, what voters are, are talking about is Promises that were made, but promises that weren't kept or things that they thought were going to be addressed aren't or things that you said you wouldn't do, you did. And that's where this voting population is throwing their hands up and saying, we're out, we're not doing this, we're not going to back you. And when you combine that type of support loss, if these numbers hold true, even if these numbers hold true, hold partially true if Joe Biden were to get 50 55 percent of of that 18 to 34 well that you're still going to end up losing 10 15 percent which is going to be impactful in some of these tight states and then you look at different other segments of the voting base and it could be particularly troubling for Joe Biden so we'll continue to watch it but I've, I, I really have maintained that young voters are they're, they're a wild card it's very difficult to know what they're going to do. You can count on 55-year-olds, 65-year-olds, 70-year-olds. They are going to do anything that they, that they need to do to make sure that they get to the polls. And now you're seeing younger voters say, ah, we're going to bail because he hasn't done enough or he went back on things that he said he was going to do. Um, Brian, you remember the story I told about my Christmas tree last year? And the millions of spiders that came out of it? I mean, Billions, yeah, maybe?
6: Yeah. Perhaps. Yes, uh, I do. How about this? I remember you were still some brushing yourself as you told me the story. And, uh, yeah, it's just... <laughs> ugh, ugh.
0: A family found something living in their Christmas tree in, I believe, Kentucky. A Lexington family. Nice area. <laughs> they found a baby owl in their Christmas tree. Okay. they bought the tree, decorated it, strung lights up. They said they put it in the living room where their TV is. They've got a few dogs and there was no indication that there was something living in the tree. They have three dogs. Yeah. They said they use the TV nonstop. They use that room nonstop. The kitchen's right there and still no indication that there was something living in it. The
6: cutest little baby owl, I got to say. Yeah, and they won't move if they're babies and they're scared. They'll won't just hold very still.
0: Yep. So
6: this this thing just
0: was holding tight. Hind, just, just just trying to go unnoticed. <laughs> and finally, a family said they saw it and somebody came and got it and made sure they got it to safety or somewhere that it was going to be able to, to survive. Because living inside a, a family's Christmas tree inside is not going to be the place to be. Uh, no, I, I would have rather had an owl than the spiders. Just FYI, for the record, duh. It was horrific. Still very scarred by that. I, I don't wish that upon anybody. All right, we got to take a break. Congressman Sri Tanedar joins us next on JR afternoon. Well, some of these protests, pro Palestinian protests, are becoming, uh becoming physical, like at least locally. There was a holiday party uh, at a bar in the Cass Corridor. Uh, the Detroit News did a nice job. Hannah McKay and Sarah Rayhall uh, did a nice job with this piece in the Detroit News. If you get a chance to to check it out, but they painted this picture of this holiday party at this establishment, the Cass Corridor. It it got physical. One woman had a broken nose that she suffered uh, in that in that particular. Uh, event and demonstrators said that the party's attendees engaged in violence that same night at the townhouse restaurant in woodward in downtown a palestinian group of protesters chanted the name of the restaurateur who's jewish uh from the public sidewalk and and it's becoming a little more intense locally uh it also became intense For Sri Tanadar, the congressman, who Sunday was woken up at 3 a.m. to protesters outside of his home in Palmer Woods. People honking horns, using megaphones uh, with drums. And they were chanting, your silence is violence. Your silence is abhorrent. We will not let you sleep. Which prompted the uh, congresswoman, excuse me, congressmen to say, "You, you might have to change the way you're doing this. Sri Tanidar joins us this afternoon on Jr. Afternoon. Congressman, good to have you. Thanks for having me. Why do you feel like they would be more uh, or or better served by changing the way they're going about this?
5: Look, you know, if they are trying to get attention to their demands, their viewpoint uh, hurting citizens, Uh, pushing and shoving uh, doesn't do the trick, you know. They need to sit down uh, and uh, have a civil conversation. Look, I love First Amendment. And, you know, we respect First Amendment. And, you know, in a civic way, we can disagree. We can sit face to face, say what's on our mind. And that's what I want. What happened on Saturday night was that we were having 13th Congressional district was having a holiday party and you know these 30 people disguised themselves came in then they took their t-shirts off and they had other t-shirts inside that had writing on it they started pulling things out of their pockets like flags palestinian flag somebody had a a big microphone uh, and they started shouting and yelling and it created chaos
0: what i you know from a from a politician's perspective, I, I it always feels like it would be so difficult with people shouting in your face or shouting outside your home or shouting these messages. I mean, it has to feel personal to a certain extent. How do you take it when people, you know, say like your voice, your, your silence is violence? I mean, that, that can't that can't feel good.
5: No, but, you know, I am a problem solver. You know, I'm a business person. I want to get things done. Look, if you're going to say silence is violence, whatever, standing outside of my home at 3 a.m., we are not having any kind of conversation. We are not changing any minds. What I say to them is that set up an appointment, call my office, set up an appointment, let's do a Zoom call so everybody can join or we could meet in person, have conversation. Tell me what's on your mind. I'll help you understand why I vote the way I vote, why I have these opinions, and what. And we can agree or on some issues we can disagree. For example, nobody in their right mind wants innocent people, whether they're Israelis or Palestinians, to to die. You know, among all this war and terrorism. The people that really suffer are the innocent people, mm. and there are things that we can agree. Now, how do we save lives? How do we, uh, you know, fight these terrorists? How do we el- eliminate the terrorism so that we won't have this kind of situation happening over and over again? So, those are the kind of conversations we need to sit face to face and have, not not you know shouting at three a.m. or not pushing my supporters in our holiday party.
0: It feels like. That more politicians are being targeted at their at their homes where they live. Uh, Senator Gary Peters in Bloomfield Township had pro-Palestinian protests outside his home. Governor Gretchen Whitmer last month, uh, Debbie Dingell and Hillary Scholten, uh were trapped inside the DNC building in Washington, D.C. after a Palestinian protest broke out. It, 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 is it is it crossing a line, do you believe, uh, coming to to elected officials homes uh, and 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 demonstrating
5: outside? A little bit. Maybe if it is 3 a.m., it's not just me, you know, it's my neighbors. Uh, You know, it really uh, scared my wife because sometimes I'm traveling and she's by herself. So she worries about something like this. You know, we have neighbors uh, that uh, call the police. So, you know, it just disturbs the peace and doesn't accomplish anything. You know, for us to be able to come up with good policy We need to be able to listen to constituents, and all we can do, the best thing we can do is talk, converse, be face-to-face, meet, be civil, but say our point, say what's on our mind.
0: Congressman Sri Chanadar joins us, and and Congressman, while I have you, I know you've been called back to Washington uh, to work on on a bill, uh, an aid bill to Ukraine and Israel, and Republicans want to tie border funding and border policies to that bill what what's the status of that at this hour
5: that bill is currently not going anywhere mm. you know uh, nobody wants uh, uh, restrictions put on uh, uh, an aid to israel when israel is fighting uh, hamas and uh, barbaric terrorists they are uh, nobody wants to put uh, limits when uh, we have issues where russia is uh, you know encroaching on an independent sovereign country so uh, there is still things need to be done. President Biden has put together a really good proposal uh, that it also includes aid for Palestinian people. And I think that's the one that should pass. And that's what should be advanced.
0: Uh, you know, the NBC News did a, a a poll that showed that the president has dwindling support amongst amongst younger voters, 18 to 34 Um, And they cite a variety of reasons why why they wouldn't vote for him a second time or why they're they're not automatically casting a vote for him a second time. Michigan continues to be a major swing state. Uh, I think we all expect that to be much of the same in 2024. Um, How much concern do you think there is not only for the president, but. For for those on the down ballot, uh, certainly uh, Democrats here in the state of Michigan, I, is that a concern that that is on your radar yet or, or on the DNC's radar, do you believe?
5: Oh, absolutely. You know, nothing can be taken for granted when elections are concerned. You know, life is tough. Uh, you know, the prices of uh, essential goods have gone up. Grocery bills are almost doubled. So people are concerned. Many people, uh, many of my constituents who live – Paycheck to paycheck are concerned about the cost. Uh, we're concerned about the violence. We're concerned about mass shootings. You know, there is a lot of, uh, um, you know, concerns. And uh, President Biden and the Democrats have done a great job. Last Congress was the most productive Congress um, uh, in recent memory. Uh, you know, Sheree, do we have you still?
0: Oh I think we lost i think we lost our connection with with Congressman Shri Tanadar. um in the meantime i i i I think it's interesting that they recognize that this could be an issue, and so they're gonna they're gonna have to get on it because more and more voters i think are are looking at it and saying this is not something that we that we that that we are subscribing to this time around, and that could certainly help Republicans as we inch closer to the election uh we appreciate Congressman Shri Tanadar joining us. Uh, on JR. Afternoon, we got to take a break. Uh, coming up next some interesting statistics about Christmas trees and their their how real they look. You'd be surprised at how far they've slide more next. All right. Welcome back. Good to have you. Um, You know, we've kind of had some heavy conversations today, uh, which is great. Look, I, I don't care what time of year it is. And I know we're getting closer to christmas and just had hanukkah but but these stories these these ever evolving highly sensitive stories are are going on still and so i think when we consider talking about you know the the israel hamas conflict it 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 really doesn't take a back seat it continues to be front and center if you missed my conversation with Shahid Khan and Howard Lupovitz of Wayne State University, I uh, I would urge you to go take a listen at thegreatvoice.com, really great information, thoughtful, insightful discussion about this very complex issue. And and it can be boiled down to being very sad, people are dying, people are losing loved ones, people aren't able to to get the things that they need to survive. It's it's horrific. It's 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 not pleasant at all. But it's so nuanced. It's so, it's, there's so much more to it. So I would urge you to, to go take a listen at the great Um, in the meantime, let's lighten things up a little bit. A volcano has erupted in Iceland. Uh, this is, this is something that is continuing to evolve. Um, the eruption lit up the sky in iceland creating a two and a half mile fissure that sent a river of lava flowing towards surrounding towns and through molten rock 300 feet into the air um and this is in the Reykjavik area and and this was it was this the volcano that had kind of been rumbling over the last couple of months? I believe Right, so. a couple of months ago, it's, they started seeing some real activity. Yeah. Have you seen the video
6: of this? Uh, I have not been able to it see the video yet. Amazing. I mean, Is it I, like
0: quintessential volcano yes, eruption video? Yes, it's the oh, lava
6: shooting in just the Just straight up in the it's air? lighting up.
3: The oh, board. awesome. It's,
6: I mean, not awesome. You, you, know, <laughs> you look at it and you go, that's beautiful. And then you go, yeah, it's going to destroy all these. It's like, oh <laughs> it's well, that's going to ruin so everything. Yes. Hmm. But it looks really, nature's amazing. Uh, No, there's no doubt
0: about it. (laughs) It is wild. It really is unbelievable uh, how much uh, I continue to be amazed by nature. Uh, The lava has flowed since its peak late Monday night. Lava mountains flowing from 300 to 100 feet in the air. Oof. Uh, The eruption is now about one quarter its size at the start of the eruption and a third of its original fissure activity uh, as of local time. That's according to Icelandic officials. So we'll continue to watch it. But uh, certainly. Uh, some pretty scary situations in Iceland. Meanwhile. Uh, now really on to some more fun stuff. Um, the cost. It takes. To decorate big for Christmas. So. And I'm not talking about like the old like those old bulbs, like the old, you know, National Lampoon Christmas vacation bulbs that they would put on houses. Now a lot of these bulbs are LEDs, there's lots of screens, and and there is, you know, different th- different ways to to save money. Generally, those are more expensive up front, but uh a little more cost saving in the in the application process. Uh, This house, this is a story that the BBC did over the top holiday decorating on the outside of homes is at an all time high. Uh, And when you consider how much money people are spending to curate and 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 when they invest and when they actually deploy this, these uh, just unbelievable amounts of lights, it is reaching into the. Hundreds of thousands of dollars. Mike Bagwell, who's 52 years old, lives in Springfield, Missouri, has a multi-yard light display. Uh, It costs him $130,000 to... And and that's how much he spent on all the decorations and then how much it costs to run it every year. Uh, He's got... A uh, main display of thirty thousand standard bulbs, eighty thousand pixel light bulbs with uh, LED lights within them, two hundred seventy thousand Christmas bulbs on his house, and the budget every year is three to five grand for repairs, improvements, and the upticks in electric bills that he sees. So in all, he spent one hundred thirty thousand dollars, but he spends. Roughly every year, up to three, uh, up to five thousand dollars, unbelievable. Or uh, Melissa Bessler in Illinois, fifty-one thousand dollars into her Halloween decorations at her home. Again, spending thousands of dollars every year, fifteen hundred to three thousand dollars every year in just the electric bill alone. Now, I live in Southwest Oakland County. And I've got a couple of different really impressive light displays in my area. Daniela, you're in Canton. I know you've got one. You've got one in your area too, right? You've got the, it's it's the the one that's synced up to a, a radio frequency? Uh, that's the Bostic house. That's in Garden City. But there is, oh, Garden a, City. Okay. there is a really, really great one in Canton. And it actually, they have taken over the median as well. And they taped, they taped down. It's what? crazy. And it and they have a sign
1: that literally says you can get out and walk around, and you know they have the things where you can walk under, and there's yeah.
0: a, oh my god, it's crazy. It is impressive, and it's impressive when you consider how much it, it is to to operate. I mean, you're, you're, it's thousands of dollars, thousands of dollars every year. Um, but it's cool. It draws a nice crowd. It it you know it puts a smile on kids' faces during the year. But woo, it 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 is something else. Uh, there is also a show now that. Uh, we we started watching because of the the boys. It's uh, on ABC. It's like um, a holiday Christmas light show. Yep. And they give out an award every every episode, but they they profile like three different um, mm-hmm. three different houses around the country. One I saw they had um, those those uh, the the drones. They had like forty thousand drones or four thousand drones. I don't remember how my, how many it was, but it was a lot of drones and they were all synced up, so they would go up into the sky, and they would, like, make shapes or snowmen no or way. Santa. It was crazy.
1: On, on that light show?
0: Yeah. So talk about big-time money. Mm. That's big-time money. I love that show, though. Big-time money. Um, This is the first year in a long time where we haven't had a real Christmas tree. Uh, We we tried this year. We went to five different U-cut farms and couldn't find a tree, so we went with the... the uh, the fake Christmas tree that we have, which is a great fake Christmas tree. What Danielle? You don't have to raise your hand.
1: Okay. Well, I just have. <laughs> this a question. isn't fourth grade. How could you not find
0: one? What they, they're everywhere. W- w- were you not here the day we did this? I we we I talked about. It. it was either they were too short, they were too tall and skinny, they just weren't. They weren't the trees that we wanted. So you could find one, you just didn't want. We any couldn't of those. find a tree that we wanted.
2: You didn't like the rejects.
0: I didn't want one of the trees that were offered.
2: Okay.
1: Anyways.
0: Oh, and what am I, a bad person? Because mm-hmm. I don't want a, a specific tree. I'm over here. I have a fake tree, too, but that's mm. for money okay. purposes. So uh, we we had gotten a fake tree last year uh, that some uh, Stephanie's uh, grandparents gave us because our tree had was infested with uh, billions of spiders. So we put the fake one up when we couldn't find a real tree. But it's a great-looking fake tree, it it really looks real. And once you fluff it up, it is, I mean, it's almost indistinguishable. You would think it's a real tree. Uh, I'm sure it was very expensive, but, but we got it for free. <laughs> so it was great. Trees have gotten less and less real looking, according to uh, a new study. Um, this year, 70%, 77% of Americans are displaying a Christmas tree Uh, that they say, instead of displaying a real one, they're going to opt for an artificial one. That's according to the American Christmas Tree Association. Uh, A shift in fake Christmas trees is is not particularly new. Kind of became a trend in the mid-90s. And then when COVID came around, everybody kind of went, or at least more people went to the fake Christmas trees. But more and more, as an effort to save costs, uh people are buying trees, particularly online, when it's difficult to really see what they look like, and they're getting trees back that look they don't look at all like a real Christmas tree. Very plasticky, not full, and people are, are going, Well, wait a second, why is this happening? But they are looking less and less real. It's not like going up to Bronner's. You know, you go to Bronner's and they've got all those trees, and then look, they're expensive, but they look they look really good. Fake tree. These are not. They look like they've been pressed in some awful, uh you know, kind of watered down well, the artificial forest green trees and they terrible. always
6: been trying to trick you into think my grandparents' tree, and as long as they were alive, this was their tree. It was silver. It was like the tinsel. Sure. That was the tree. It was silver. And then there was a little light they put on a stand in front of it that rotated yellow red green blue and it just rotated so the tree changed colors okay but, but was, you know what you're was, not
0: trying uh, to get a realistic
6: looking tree, no, though. no but that like was a lot of cool. people had those trees and that's you know you're talking like the 70s a lot of people had that kind of tree so they haven't always been trying to trick you you know an artificial yes. tree
0: yes but people are expecting they're getting a, a like a decent looking tree one that looks yeah at least kind of realistic and what they're getting back is just crap
6: Another thing we talk about that you don't shop for everything online. Some stuff you have to I, look. At look I person. agree.
0: People hammer me for that, but Some stuff sometimes you got it. You
6: gotta see stuff. Yes. You
0: gotta go up and see it and touch it and absolutely see if it passes the smell test. All right, we got to take a break. We're talking to Steve Courtney next on Jr. Afternoon. All right. Now look. Here's the deal: when you become a, a, a football team with a pulse, and your organization is. Is surging all of a sudden. There are there are consequences to that. Is that fair, KB? Uh, I
7: I I like the term consequences instead of gouge.
0: There are consequences there to are that.
7: There are gouging to that.
0: Uh and to help us break down what this could mean for you, Lions fans,
8: we welcome in one Stephen Q Courtney. Hello, Stephen. Chris KB. Good afternoon again, my friends. First of all, this conversation brought to you by the tremendous folks at Bill Brown Ford. Forward down the field. Yes, the W's have been stacking up. Wing wheelers, tough night last night, but they're all right. My good friend Matt Garko and his team are stacking wins each and every day. Drive with the champions at Bill Brown Ford. Shop their TrueView inventory at BillBrownFord.com today. Uh, Yeah, Chris, KB, as you've been alluding to for a while, the Lions have not been good. They have not been good at all. Uh, That has changed uh, with Brad Holmes, general manager, of course, Dan Campbell, the head coach, and um, it is the law, if I can add this, of supply and demand. The Lions have supplied a quality club, and uh, they're going to demand a little bit more dough. Uh, season ticket holders uh, got this in the mail, some invoices that dictate the following. If you're in the upper deck, uh your seats next year will go up about 80%. Increases in the lower bowl and club level are a little bit smaller, but still on the rise. Uh You're talking maybe about a 69% increase, and if you're sitting at the uh, club level, uh you're going to see a 59% increase. Uh, so here we go. The Honolulu Blue and Silver have won 10 of their first 14 games, uh, enjoying one of their best seasons in recent memory. And in fairness to the Lions organization, while they were woeful, which was for a long period of time, and again, I'm just going to throw out a name, Matt Patricia. Remember those years? Oh, by the way, he was the same guy calling the defense for the Eagles last night as they fall for the third straight time in Thank Seattle. You. I digress. Um, here's what it comes down to for this Lions team. Uh, the magic number is one. Uh, they're going to be in the land of 10,000 lakes, we know, Sunday afternoon for a little how you doing with the purple people eaters. Uh, should the Lions win, they will win their first division championship in some 30 years. So the fear here is um, there's been some very loyal, I mean loyal, lions season ticket holders as a matter of fact i would put uh the lions fan base up against uh, anybody as far as loyalty goes um is this increase going to price out a lot of those i certainly hope not because uh that would be a tragedy
0: i think that look this is this is the cost of doing business in the nfl and of course when you're a desired product Owners are going to raise their ticket prices. And, and the Lions, to their credit, they haven't raised ticket prices um, noticeably. I mean, they've gone up a little bit. It's 2023, well, they for God's have. sakes. But but you, there's no justification for it in years past. Now they've got an avenue. Now they've got an opening because people are going to, to, to still flock to these tickets. Here's what I don't want to see happen. All right? And you, you alluded to it, Steve what we have here in detroit our fans the reason's why that you know saturday night was the way that was the atmosphere was the way it was is because there are fans in the seats there, a major i mean a vast majority 80 90% of those people in the seats are fans what you see in other places like in new england what you see in places like kansas city it's much more corporate you have businesses buying tickets to take clients to and to take and 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 to use inside the business, it becomes a it becomes a difficult a, a different environment inside these stadiums. So I'm with you. I want this to remain a fans fan venue here at Ford Field for this team.
8: Well, and to thicken the plot, uh, Ford Field, just a beautiful venue. I think we're all in agreement of that. Uh, but it also happens to be one of the league's smallest uh, capacity, near sixty five thousand. So uh, the better the Lions get. And they're there. Um, I think uh, a ticket to a Lions game is going to be at a premium. Mm -hmm. So is it going to filter down to the haves and have-nots? Meaning, uh, is it going to become a little bit more corporate? I hope not, because I have spent a lot of time at Ford Field. I truly enjoy the lunch pail blue-collar crowd. Uh, I think that is what defines the Lions fan base, and I certainly hope that continues.
0: All right, KB, where are you at on this?
8: I think they should have
7: gradually raised it. Uh, 83% raise on ticket prices in one year is ridiculous. And that, True enough, I give them credit. They did have the lowest ticket prices. They never had those PSLC licenses. Right. They never did anything. But the, they could have gradually raised it over maybe a two- or three-year period to the 83%. Mm-hmm. But just to go from zero to 83 I just think that's a little much. And also...
0: And those the, are the cheap seats, right? Those yeah, are well, they're the cheap ones. Seats. They're the cheap ones. But still my point good is people who are up there... Can't afford seats on uh, the fifty they, maybe, yard line down at the bottom. Well, not
7: can't afford the bottom ones, but the, the, the ticket prices are still within range of every NFL team. Correct after the race. But my thing is, the loyal fans that have been going to see some of that garbage over the last twenty years should be rewarded with a loyalty thing. Like if you had take um, like season tickets twenty years, you get grandfather the discount. Mm. You know that's what they should do because look, they, uh, you, I don't have any problem with anybody making money in a pile of it, but. Be reasonable with it. I, I heard guys they've been talking about this all day. People that have had tickets for forty years, and all of a sudden, they're twenty five hundred dollars yeah, differences do and stuff. So yeah. They can't get. But people nowadays, anyway, they're not using the whole season ticket package. They're selling tickets off right. anyway. So you know, we'll make it work. Yeah. But like I said, the, um, just win. They shouldn't have did this after the season. Yeah, because you know, this is a bad omen. If they it. lose these last three games, and then gave these ticket prices out. All right, be there. Oh boy. Oh well, boy. that's a that's
8: a valid point, KB. Quickly, if you've been a Lions season ticket holder for 30 years, A, did you ever get a sympathy card? And B, you should be entitled to some sort of uh, loyalty discount. Now, that's probably not in the works, yeah. uh, people way above me making that decision, uh, but it would be nice to extend something like that. I doubt it will happen.
0: Steve Courtney, thanks, man. Talk to you tomorrow.
8: All right, see you. The
7: All Vikings, right. baby. Yeah, and if they win, they will purify themselves in the waters of Lake Minnetonka. Oh,
0: will they? Yes, they will. Will they have like a cup? Will a just yeah. bathing Prince, in
7: Prince will do his little thing? Oh, and, good. Yes, good. Yes,
0: game blouses. All right, <laughs> Mitch Alman and the crew coming up next. Have yourself a wonderful day. Uh, appreciate you listening. We'll see you tomorrow, same time, same place. Have a good one.